0: maybe it's the way most businesses start that you're a naive optimist (laughs) so we were definitely very lucky a lot of people they develop investment products to meet the market need what me and Doug did was a bit differently is that we we gave the market the product we had and we were very lucky timing wise that that happened to coincide with a period when the market really wanted the product
1: It's not every day you meet a trained robber trader who, at a mature age of his life, decides to set up his own fund management business and ends up building it into one of the world's largest discretionary commodity-only fund management businesses. So you can imagine that I learned a lot from speaking to my guest today, and I'm sure you will too. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear, set out as the most honest and transparent account I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 79. If this is your first episode you've heard you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show.
0: This is Mike Coleman, founder of RCMA, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing this, Mike. And by the way, if you
1: want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the TopTradersUnplugged.com website and sign up by hitting the button in the top right corner. It's really that simple. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Now, you're a little bit different from most of my guests on the podcast, since you're the first manager that I've spoken to that are based in Asia and more specifically in Singapore. And I guess another slight difference about our conversation today is the fact that I just visited you in your offices in Singapore, where we had a chance to meet up in person, which unfortunately, I don't have a chance to do with most of the people that I speak to. And of course, another unique thing about you and your firm compared to many other firms is your focus and dedication to the commodities, both the physical and via commodity futures. So I I think we're in for a rare treat today during our conversation as we get into your story and your strategy. But before we jump into all of the details, I just have a simple question that I try to ask all of my guests in order to appreciate the many different answers there is to this question and it's a little bit about what you answer and what you how you explain what you do when you meet people for the first time who don't know you and they basically want to find out what you do what do you respond to them how do you explain what you do
0: yeah so we'd explain it that we're trying to make available to investors the trading approach style and philosophy that the that the large physical commodity trading houses utilize on their prop desks. So if you could isolate what Cargill's corn desk, how it analyzes markets, how it takes positions, and we try and apply that philosophy style and approach and and make it available to general investors.
1: Excellent. But we're going to stay with you uh, a lot longer now because I really would like you to go and tell your story how you got into the business in the first place and perhaps in order to put a little bit of extra color on 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 this you know tell me a little bit of like you know what would you like as a kid or a young man growing up uh, so so i'm gonna leave that you know with you now and 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 sit back for a little while as as i listen and learn as well <laughs> okay.
0: Um, well, I'm. Um, I come from uh, the northwest of England, um, just outside Liverpool, a town called St. Helens, which for for people who know it is a sort of northern industrial English town. So I grew up in you know my in, in you know, a town that was coal mining and glass making and sure. very, very famous for its rugby team. Right. Um, so, working class background. Um, as a kid, I, I guess two things relevant to how my career turned out. The first thing was that uh, I always wanted to travel. Okay. And the second thing was uh, from quite an early age, I was always trying to figure out how you might be able to make money. Okay. and in, in particular I had an uncle who was um, who was very keen on horse racing <laughs> and uh, he used to have me run his bets down to the bookies and uh, explain to me odds and so on so I think that that played its part in the long run cool. Um I went went away to university in 1979 um, with no no idea that I might become a commodity trader. Sure. Um, my my degree is actually in geology, and at the time I was I was thinking that you know I'd like to be an exploration geologist uh, out in the field, um, you know prospecting for gold or petroleum or whatever. Um, purely by chance. Um, when when companies were visiting the university in our final year, and you're beginning to think about what jobs you'd like to do, um, I was on my way back from rugby training one evening when uh, one of the guys I was with said, oh, "There's this, uh, there's free drinks at the Eastgate Hotel tonight. Um, there's this company called Tradax from Geneva who's, you know, throwing this drinks party, and Tradax was the um, Freydax was the name under which Cargill operated in, in ah. Europe in those days. Okay. Um, so I went along to this drinks party um, and they showed a, they showed a, I want to say video, but probably in 1982 it wasn't a video. It was a Cine8 film or something um, about grain trading. And, you know, the, the film started, there was a shot of, you know, combine harvesters rolling in the Midwest, mm. cut to the trading floor in Chicago, um, you know, shot of a Panamax boat loading in Baton Rouge, uh, flashed to a trading desk somewhere with traders screaming into telephones. Um, and I just looked at this and thought, that looks an incredibly fun way to make a living. <laughs> Um, there was a big attraction, which played into my desire to travel more widely, was that they were offering second interviews in Geneva, mm-hmm. which, which as a you know poor student was was quite quite an interesting uh, proposition. So I went along, um, learned a bit more about what what Cargill did, what TradeX did, what commodity trading was, and the analogy that sort of struck my mind immediately was. You know, in a way, this is just like being a bookmaker, Mm -hmm. and so I can sort of think about that, and you know, and it just struck me as as what a fun way to make a living. Um, Cargill at the time um, were were quite concerned. I think it's still a concern today. You know, how do you know whether somebody's going to be a good trader or not? And the answer is, you, you don't until they actually do it. Sure. And so you're looking for clues and signs and, and so on, but a big element is: can somebody's personality is it robust enough to be able to stand? First of all, the pressure of you know market price movements and, and constant P and L feedback, and secondly, is it robust enough to be able to sit on a trading desk and you know be shouted at, um, be sworn at. Um, <laughs> And so Cargill went to some pains that once they selected the, the the people who were going for second interview, they encouraged us to go and spend the, you know, go and spend a day on the grain desk in the UK, which in those days was a maidenhead near near London.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that you know, do you think you'd be able to work in this environment? And they went to great pains to stress this is you know not an environment that that would suit everybody. Cool. And cool. you know, again, I went down and you know it was. The trading floors today are very tame and very quiet. So everybody into first of all, nobody talks on the phone anymore. They're they're all busy instant messaging, (laughs) and when they're on the phone, they're by the standards of 1982 very polite. So um, you know, I sat there sat around this trading room, and you know, people were you know screaming and swearing at brokers. phone abuse was a big problem. People would literally slam the handsets and break them. Sure. <laughs> Today, you, you walk in and I'm at the risk of sounding like, uh, you know, it's a bit like Mad Men or something. You know, Was the world really like that? Well, sure. yes, it was. It yeah. was a very, very, very different world. And so that just that combination of, you know. The, the energy. The, <laughs> the energy, the excitement of markets, I think what you find when you talk to a lot of people why commodities, rel- you know, rather than equities or bonds, I think there is the physicality of commodities that they're real things, um, you know, the historical context. You know, you could argue that you know the modern economy as we know it came about with the you know sugar and coffee and and the whole colonial colonial movement, if you like, sure, in the, sure. from from the 16th century onwards. And so commodities have this, you know, romance, physicality um, that's sort of missing in, you know, bonds a piece of paper and equities a piece of paper. A Panamax of grain is, you know, something you can get your hands on. And so, and please stop me if you think I'm going on too long. No,
1: but, no, but, go but, ahead.
0: But anyhow, I, I, joined Cargill. At the end of the day, I had to make a decision. I was offered a job by an oil company to be a petroleum exploration geologist, okay. and a job by Cargill to be a trainee commodity merchant, and and I decided that that probably being a commodity merchant would be much more fun. Sure. Uh, and so I took Cargill's job, and then in a, a sort of quirk of fate, you know, I, I took the job fully expecting to be a grain trader. Okay. It so happened that that, that year, Cargill had uh, bought some soft commodity trading businesses. And so my first posting ha- ended up being to this newly acquired uh, rubber trading business. <laughs> um, and so I started my working life as a, you know, a junior merchant in, in a Cargill's rubber department in, in London and then two years later, I was I was given the opportunity to um, to spend some time in Singapore. Uh, originally a two-year assignment, um, and you know I'm still here today. Right. So, so I came to Singapore in 1984. Um, spent 30 years, uh, 31st year in Singapore. Mm-hmm. My career in cargo was very atypical in that a I spent a long time in in one location. Right. Um, particularly the the normal, normal experiences that you get moved every two or three years to, to different locations, different commodities. Um, I ended up running Cargill's uh, worldwide rubber business um, in the early 90s. Um, in the late 90s, I ran Cargill's petroleum trading for the Asia Pacific. So I'm a I'm a rubber trader who became a petroleum trader. Right. Um, 2001, I left Cargill um, and went to work with Marabaney. And while uh, while I was at Marabaney as well, I developed the idea for what became the Merchant Commodity Fund. And this idea of, you know, if an investor wants – and this is now 2002, 2003 – and at that time, if you were an investor wanting exposure to commodity markets, you could, uh, you know, you could go buy a commodity index and be long only commodities. You could go go buy the equity of a mining company or a, uh, you know, an agricultural company, and there uh, you'd be. There's all the company-specific risk. Sure. What you couldn't easily get exposure to was you know, how do professional commodity, physical commodity traders make money? Right. And, you know, if you think about it in terms of sustainable alpha generation, this is a model that, when done well, has enabled companies, you know, Cargill of this year is celebrating its 150th anniversary. Yeah. I think Dreyfus is probably older than Cargill. So, so you know, for centuries, the, the approach of utilizing fundamental supply demand analysis, um, a deep understanding of how the commodity is produced, process moved, what its elasticities and frictions are, um, that, that this is a sustainable way to take alpha out of commodity markets. And so back in 2002, 2003, um, investors were unable. There was there was no way to get access to that. Um, there were very few discretionary fundamental commodity fund offerings. Um, there were traditional CTAs, but you know by the early two thousands they were typically more financial than than commodities, and the the approach generally systematic rather than fundamental. Um, and so I felt there was a real there was a real market uh, real market need for for the approach um, because at the time it was becoming clear that what was going on with China was transitioning the commodity markets out of what had been a long bearish couple of decades into you know a bull market and potentially a bull market that could run for some time mm. and that therefore there would be you know investor interest in commodities and the weaknesses of long only investing would be would become apparent fairly quickly
1: right right and i, I wanted to ask you i mean you, you you the way you explain it and 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 i think that's it's very interesting uh, about sort of the the uh, just just the brief introductions you've you've given about what it really takes to take alpha out as a fundamental commodity trade. I mean, I don't. I, I mean, I can't think of top of my head of uh, of of any other firms, and I know they 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 exist today. And um, but but do you find that there are many people doing what you do um, and offering it to investors in the way you do it? I mean, are there many of of your types of 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 uh, strategies out there?
0: Uh, no, there aren't many. Um, there are more than there were in 2003, right? There are, there are less than there were in 2011. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the bull marketing commodities sparked interest. And, and if you like people like, like ourselves, the early movers demonstrated, you know, that, that, that you could raise significant assets with the right offering. Um, there's, there is, though, naturally a limiting factor to, to our approach, and that is that you need to have a really good understanding of the commodities that you're trading. Right. And more importantly, you have to have a good enough network to, to gather real-time fundamental information in what are very opaque markets. Right. So so if you think about it, in the world, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of equity and bond traders, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of FX traders, sure. there are only, you know, several thousand commodity traders.
1: Mm.
0: And so it's a much smaller universe. And it was also a universe that was generally contracting during the 80s and 90s. So, so you know from the from the early 80s onwards you know commodity markets had had a very strong uh, you know 1970s that you know the um, if you like the climactic moment you might say was when a when a bunch of metals traders were able to buy the world's biggest bond trader so when when fibro bought uh, bought solomon brothers sort sure. of marked the mark the high watermark of commodities relative to financial assets by the mid by the mid 80s we were just beginning the you know the 30-year bond bull market the 30-year you know 20-year equity bull market and the you know the tide was shifting so so the the 80s and 90s saw in a lot of commodities a significant downsizing of the numbers of companies active in those commodities and to an extent, there was a one-off shift of commodity traders into the financial markets in, in the mid-late 80s. Right. Um, so by 2002, you know, if you think, you know, let, let's say to be able to offer this uh, this strategy credibly, you, you, you have to have experience in commodities, yeah. probably have worked for one of the big commodity houses. And by definition, you're going to be somewhere, you know, you can't be much younger than your mid-30s. Right. <laughs> and so that, that pool of people in 2003 was quite a small pool of people. Yeah, yeah. By by 2011, it was a bigger pool of people, but the opportunity cost of giving up a, a job on a prop desk at Cargill or Dreyfus had gone up considerably from where it was in 2002, 2003.
1: Sure. I I, wonder, I mean, I agree with that. And that's a key difference to many of the uh, sort of systematic strategies that that I am more familiar with, where essentially technology allows you, even at a young age, if you understand technology well, and you probably need to understand a little bit less the, the underlying markets, um, because yeah. in itself, it's systematic. And, you know, yes. we don't, you know, they don't look at fundamentals. So, so you see certainly more of the sort of the younger generation getting into that space. So, so you make a very important point there. But I also wanted to ask you before we move on, if you look at your career at Cargill, yes. what do you think of all the things you learned? What do you think has been the most important thing to bring into then the fund management side of of what you do?
0: That's an interesting question. I think two, two two aspects, sort of on the on the investment side of things, just the the process of supply demand analysis, right, and the understanding of how how that interacts with price and the the sort of non linearity of, of 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 price behaviour to you know sort of straw that breaks the camel's back. So. You know, global a global surplus of one percent might have no no impact on price, whereas widen that surplus to two percent and the price halves. Right, and it has to do with you know free free inventory levels and the ability of the system to to carry uh, inventory and so on. On the business side of things, and I think maybe this was actually more you know equally as useful. Because Cargill, you know, if you're in the management trainee program and so on and, you know, you know my career, I was given the opportunity to manage, manage uh, trading businesses from about, the, you know, I, I was a desk head at the age of 25, 26 in, in what was a small, you know, small new business. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is you get lots of experience in how to run a business. Right And how to, you know, how does the accounting function work? How does the logistic function work? How do you, you know, workflow process? So on and so forth. Um, Usually important element was I started work, you know, several years before computers started appearing on on people's desks. And one of your key jobs as a junior merchant was to do the P&L by hand. Right. (laughs) <laughs> hard to imagine um,
1: these days right
0: hard to imagine these days but what that does do that gives you a really great understanding of how the pieces fit together mm-hmm. and also very importantly it, it was sort of a, a matter of your you know your professional development as a trader that you should always know what your p&l is better than the accountants do Right. So, if ever you get a number that look that you should instantly recognise whether the P and L number that's being put in front of you is is right or wrong, mm. and that's actually very important. Sure. Um, I think uh, you know a lot of a lot of guys, particularly if you grow up, you know, on the you know the the trading desk of a big investment bank, where you know everything's from that aspect, everything's a black box. You know, you're your accountants hand you the P and L report each day, you you've not played a hand in constructing it, you maybe don't really know what costs are being allocated. Mm. So on and so forth. So that very nitty gritty of of how do you how do you run the mid and back office of a trading business? Sure. Was actually very big because a hedge fund management business in terms of complexity is actually not a very complex business relative to you know, when you're moving cargoes of physical commodity from point A to B. Yeah.
1: And I, I wanted actually to ask you about that because today your, in a sense, your objective is to, to make money. But back then I imagine without being an expert here, I imagine a big part of what you were doing was also logistically you were, you know, as you say, you were moving physical goods, goods from one place mm. to another and so on and so forth. So how how was um, what was the, the what was the sort of the the day to day back then uh really the split between you know the the physical side if we call it that uh, and and just the side of saying well you know we obviously need to make money uh, that's part of our uh, objective as well
0: as you move up the organization it beca- you know typically early in your career you'll be focused Largely on the the physical side, so okay. so in effect, in effect you in effect you'll be a sales trader, right? So the, you know, the desk head or the senior trader in your area would say, you know, we need to we need to get some stem for this vessel. Here's the price we're paying. You know, go sweet talk supplier A B C D and get them to sell it to you, right? And equally, you know, we got to, you know, the boats arriving in a week. uh, We haven't sold anything yet. Go hit the, go hit the SIF market with offers, and do that. Sure. Um, So, on any trading desk, typically in the physical commodity, most of the people are actually involved in that procurement sales process. Okay. The number of people who are actually taking the, you know managing the price risk that's been built up and aggregated is actually quite small. And and I guess the the sort of first few years of your career, the company's assessing, you know, are you one of those guys who can move into the the, the trading roles? Right. The, tr- the true trading roles. And many people, you know, it's a real skill to be able to, you know, sell the commodity, buy the commodity and you know, you find people who that's the highest and best use, and they, you know, they have very satisfying careers, uh, can make very, very decent amounts of money, without being the primary managers of the PL. and Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's a smaller subset who who have the and and the trading part of things. You know the analogy I like to use is, that to some extent, it's like being a, you know, it's it's playing a game. It's 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 like a sport that, you know, you and I can read read the rules of soccer. Mm. We, can, we can watch a soccer game and we can understand who, you know, we can recognise he's a good player, he's a bad player. Here's the tactics that that they're using. This is what the coach is thinking. Could we get on the field and actually score a goal? <laughs> And that's only ever going to be one or two people out of 100. Sure, sure, sure.
1: Now, before we move on, uh, I just want to ask you a completely different question. Um, and that is obviously, uh, you know, running the, the business today, um, you know, it's a big part of, 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 of your life. But what do you do when, when you're not working? I mean, what, what do you like to do in your, in, your, in your spare time?
0: um my my wife would say' uh, the, <laughs> l- l- lie in front of the TV and right. um, which to an extent is true but no my my passion uh, outside of work is is rugby and um, you know I used to play um, when I was younger in more recent years I got the opportunity to become a to become an owner and di- part owner and director at my my hometown uh, professional rugby club which is. Gives me gives me a lot of uh, I was going to say pleasure, but heartache, <laughs> amp, heartache and pleasure, depending right. uh, depending on how the results go. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So and then I enjoy travelling with uh, with my wife, my kids now are grown up. Ones in Hong Kong, ones in London. So get round seeing those guys. And, uh, sure.
1: Just on a sort of a, a broader question, um, but someone with your experience might be able to, to um, you know, shed some some light on it. I mean, in order to succeed when you set up a business, really regarding, you know, regardless of what industry it's in, you need to be sort of at the right place at the right time with the right team. Yep. When you were starting out, did did you feel you had those three things covered, or, or how do you, how do you ensure that 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 you got those things lined up when when you start out.
0: I think um, you know, as I look back now, maybe and maybe it's the way most most businesses start that you're a naive optimist, right? <laughs> so, you know, I was. You know I got the seed investor lined up I was excited about the chance to to do this I was a bit disappointed that for for their own good reasons Marabani had not not wanted to do it so I'd, I'd I'd made the decision to come out and and set up my own business sure. um, looking back from now there's there's a lot of stuff that could have gone wrong, gone wrong sure. <laughs> that didn't sure. and we were definitely very lucky so I mean, I think it's an interesting thing. You know, a lot of people, and you know, particularly when when it's established firms, they develop they develop investment products to meet the market need. Mm. Yeah. What I what what me and Doug did was a bit differently. Is that we we gave the market the product we had. Right. And we were very lucky timing wise that that happened to coincide with a period when. The market really wanted the product. Sure. So, you know, our two-year results in 2013 and 2014 are far superior than the first two-year results we had as a startup unknown hedge fund. Sure. Yet we've raised less money in the last 24 months than we did in the first 24 months. Yeah. yeah. And that's because... There was a lot of investor interest in commodities in 05, 06. Sure. So, so if we'd have started, you know, two years earlier, or had just started two years ago, we might not have made it through the through the burn the burn period. Sure,
1: sure. No, absolutely. And and remind me here, Mike, because you, I'm sure you know this. Uh, someone who also lives in Singapore, very famous, uh, you know, Jim Rogers was 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 the time when you started your business was that around the same time that he launched the the Rogers commodity index and 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 all of that was that taking place at the same time
0: I think he was a couple of years uh, he hadn't yet moved to Singapore sure. but I think uh, I think Jim Rogers had uh, had started doing that a couple of years earlier sort okay. of 2000 late 90s early 2000s
1: yeah because that clearly I remember that clearly also put the light, the spotlight on 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 that sector. There's a lot of uh, interest.
0: Well, no, it, um... took a, it, it took a couple of things to start happening that came together. The first thing was that commodity prices went up, right. and particularly the oil price went up. Okay, so the oil price, had, um, the oil price um, was, you know, it had been very weak after the uh, after the Asian crisis. Right. You know, it was a big deal in, I think, 1999 when it got back above 20 for the first time in a long time.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then in 2000, I think it was 2002, 2003, the oil price got to 50. Okay. Which was, you know, that was like unimaginable. It got through the peak of the, <laughs> of the first Gulf War. Sure. And back to the level of 1980. And actually, we because... You know, originally the fund had been due to start in uh, in late two in in mid two thousand and three, and because of Marubeni's rethink, we ended up not not getting started till the summer of 04 right. And we were actually frightened; we'd missed the big bull markets of two thousand and two to two thousand and four. Yeah. Because during the eighties and nineties, no bull market had lasted longer than eighteen months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so. So so there was a lot of things coming together people were beginning to realize that it wasn't business as usual in China. Sure. And and that this would have quite potentially profound impacts on on commodity prices.
1: Absolutely. I mean another thing is that you know part of the process of striving towards something which you clearly set out to do um you know it's also about enduring a certain amount you know uh, in lack of a better word suffering i mean i know you had a great run to begin with but you also had a big uh, quote unquote setback in terms of aum later on but so 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 many entrepreneurs if i if i put you into that category like so many other fund managers you know there's there's the good times but there's also the suffering in in, in to some extent during this journey how do oh, you how, yeah how do you frame that how do you frame the, the the that part of you know of of the journey that allows you to to carry on instead of just saying well you know i've had enough i mean how do you how do you frame those periods
0: well so we had two periods of of what what, what you might call suffering so we took no salary for almost 2 years right so, you know, if you look at the, the evolution of our AUM, we started with $10 million. We were still only $10 million a year later. And at 18 months, we were still only 30 or $40 million. So we started in June '04. It wasn't really until May, June 2006 that we felt the bus- you know, that the business reached sustainable cash flow profitability. Yeah. So we had two years at the beginning, and you know the burn rate at that time, as a percentage of our of our net worths, was you know it was quite significant. Yeah. And so, you know, we I'd, I'd gone into it saying, I, and I discussed it with my wife, saying, "Listen, I you know really want to do this. I think there's a there's a chance it could be very successful." Um, I'd kick myself if 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 I didn't take yeah. the chance. Um but you know, we've got enough money, you know, it's a three year project. Right. If at the end if at the end of three years it's not working, then at that point, you know, I'll have to go back and get a job. Sure. And so, you know, um, you know, by late oh five we were, you know, it was like returns are good but the money's still not coming, you know, it was it was sort of a touch and go touch and go period. But fortunately, you know, that that then turned around very dramatically at the beginning of two oh six. The experience in twenty you know, twenty eleven to to recently, in a way it's more difficult because, you know, like like everything in life, it's harder when you have something taken away from sure. you sure. than when you when you start with nothing and build it up. So, yeah. you know, we were we were the, you know, we were almost five years above a billion dollars, and then suddenly we're, uh, you know, we're approaching a hundred million. Um, and it's, you know, again, you know, do we, can we face doing this again? Right. Exactly. And and we decided we could, and, and I think it's a variety of reasons we decided that. First and most importantly, we we felt we that our model still worked and that we could still sustainably generate alpha um, and that we actually, it's what we enjoy doing.
1: Mm.
0: Secondly, we did feel an obligation, a sense of uh, responsibility to to the, by now, small number of investors who'd stuck with us uh, to get them back to high water. Sure. Um, and there was, of course, personal pride. You know, we didn't want to walk away you know, on the down note. Um, sure. So, so, so it's that combination of of things where we now. So that so that's tough. Yeah. But you can't shed too many tears for us because we'd have five years of being over a billion oh, dollars, and yeah. <laughs> you know, so so from a material point of view, you know, two thousand and four, two thousand and five was a lot more psychologically difficult because there you're you've not got you know you're burning through what capital you've managed to build up in your life to that day sure and it's so that's a much higher rate. so
1: yeah that's very true
0: and of course um
1: you know today we're going to be talking about the i mean i guess the, the merchant commodity fund is is everything you manage today is that inside the fund or do you actually do it via managed accounts as well. Uh, no, or?
0: everything's everything's in the fund. Okay,
1: okay. I want to jump to so sort of the, the first topic that goes more into to the sort of the the the, the um, strategy and the business, and it's a little bit about how do you organize yourself uh, as a business in order to run uh, these things now. As I said in the beginning, you know my strength is not sort of discretionary commodity trading. It's been the systematic space, so I know that pretty well. But, but what does it take from an organisational point of view uh, to run uh, the strategies that you do? And, and 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 I don't even know whether that changes a lot. Whether you have a hundred million dollars, or as as at your peak, you know one point five billion dollars under management. How do you? How have you organised your business?
0: Two point five. Two point five, even Wow. in June. Uh, let me look here. I've got it. Uh, PKUM was um, two point three six two billion in uh, June uh, June two thousand and eight. Wow. So, wow! Yeah. Oh, well, February. No, my uh, one of my colleagues listening in is saying I'm wrong. Two five three eight. February yeah. two thousand
1: and eight. Yeah, you're, you're right.
0: It's that. Uh, <laughs> Anyhow, um, we were. For- and again, this is just, you know, if we didn't design it this way, it's, it's the way it is. We were very fortunate in the scalability of what we do. Right. So the majority of of the instruments we we use in the fund are exchange traded futures and and options. Sure. Mostly futures. So. Um, that allows great scalability. So, actually, our mid back office is, is the same size today as it was when we were two and a half billion.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Um, it's just a matter of you know, instead of trading, you know, if we were, if we we're a billion dollars today for every one contract we trade today, we'd be trading five. Sure. Sure. Uh, but it would be the same number of tickets. Yeah. They'd just be bigger tickets. Um, so more important so so we've always had the benefit of of scalable simple to administer instruments yeah so unlike you know if you're doing a credit strategy where you're dealing in synthetic you know credit obligations then you've got mountains of paperwork and legal understandings you know we're dealing in simple instruments what's very important is the processes for managing risk and um, you know managing position, yeah. So we we have, which again, I th- you know, again was the benefit of of our backgrounds that we were able to very quickly put in place a system that enabled us to you know the the, the basic principles of you know trades reconciled, P and L reconciled, building the so we build our we build we're able to build our internal nav every day sure um, so so you need though you need to be able to put in place those processes um, and we were we were able to do that um, so just the principles so so if you like i think a lot of people when they set up you know, the focus is on if you got the investment side right which which obviously you know, is the key driver, but equally you have to be, you have to be able to demonstrate to people that you can run a business as well. Yeah. And so, you know, we were a bit older maybe than your typical startup Mm -hmm. manager. So I, I was, I was 44 uh, when, when Merchant Commodity Fund kicked off. Uh, Doug was about 37. Uh, You know, we'd run big complex businesses. So, the setting up of the processes and the business didn't phase us right and and how big is
1: your team today compared to how big it was maybe at its peak if if if, if so,
0: so 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 at its peak we were about 16 people okay and today we are uh, 11 okay all right so not
1: not not a huge difference
0: no no because when we when we downsize we just downsize the front office yeah so, the mid back office stayed unchanged. what What happened was we we took away three traders and three analysts. right. And if you were since you're now back in the growing phase
1: of the business, I'm just curious here, once you start adding new people to your firm again, what what would you be looking for in in in, in, in those people? What's important to you in in building your team and the team you've built?
0: Well, for, on the front office side of things, obviously, it's a deep understanding of, you know, when we, if we identify, you know, if we've got enough assets and we decide, okay, we want to go deeper into this particular area or start looking at, at an area we've not been looking at, then you're looking for, you know, good traders with great networks, high level of personal integrity um, you know, guys you can trust, um, and guys who are real professionals. And for us, that really means they they've got to have had some significant time moving commodities. Right. Right. The, the, so far, we've never we've never taken somebody who's come purely from a derivatives background.
1: Right. And in terms of culture in, in an organization you obviously were for many many years uh, in in you know within Cargill mm-hmm. as was as was Douglas yeah. Yeah. what was the culture like and have you adopted that culture have you developed kind of your own culture in in your business
0: well I think to you know it's one of Cargill's great strengths is its culture right and, you know it's what you know Cargill, as I think I said earlier they're celebrating their 150th year this year exactly yeah and so clearly, they do something right on the cultural front. Um, not to say it's perfect and, and so on, but you know, the the, the sort of trading cult, the trading environment, culture that we grew up with in Cargill, we're very much products of that. Yeah. So it's about um, integrity, honesty. Um, being willing, you know, robust. You know, if you're wrong, admit it. Put your hand up. Don't put the trade in the drawer. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, be willing to be willing to stand up and argue your position. Um, don't, you know, flat hierarchy. Sure. so we we think, you know, we that that's the culture we grew up in. We think it's a good culture. Um, you know, we're fortunate that we can apply it in a in a small organization. So, you know, like all big companies, you, you get into sort of bureaucratic issues when you get to lots of people. And yeah. we were able to... Big, big drive for why we wanted to do the hedge fund was that in a way, you know, we wanted to get away from managing lots of people and, sure. and, a, and, a, and a big corporate process yeah. and get back to the essence of of what we do sure
1: sure and part of the essence of what you do is of course developing a track record so let's talk a little bit about that when i talk to systematic traders um to some extent you could possibly argue that it's easier for investors to look at a track record like that and have some idea of as to how it would perform in the future if some of the (laughs) same events would would occur. But but you're somewhat different. Uh, There is a, uh, again, a lack of a better word, discretionary inputs in your analysis and so on and so forth. So how should, how how do investors, how do investors uh, get comfortable with uh, a track record like that um, because they, it doesn't necessarily reflect you're going to do the same thing next time um, something comes along so so how do you how should investors really read a track record from a discretionary trader
0: I think they have to focus on firstly the process that the that the, that the trader's going through
1: mm-hmm.
0: so is that process robust is it you know does it endure over time? And and secondly, and I you know there's no way to get away from it. In a discretionary offering, you're making a bet on the person or the people, right? And therefore, you have to get really comfortable with the people. Yeah. And so, you know, in a way, that's a sort of a drawback to to the to the scalability of what we do. And in your case, Mike,
1: who would you say are the people that drives, besides yourself, that drives the performance that people have to get comfortable with in your organization?
0: Well, you know, it's the and, and today I'm actually I'm a, you know because I'm not on the trading side anymore day to day. So 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 it's the the people managing the risk so the CIO and the and the trading team right and then you have to become comfort, very comfortable with the with the risk process the that, that's putting the parameters around that team yeah yeah
1: and and in terms of um and again i'm using sort of maybe uh terms that are comes from the systematic space but but allow me to to try anyway i mean is that the, the program itself or the strategy is that performing as you would expect from your quote-unquote research? I mean, I mean, I guess you 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 have expectations uh, to some degree uh, as to what you uh, expect the alpha or the performance to to be using the the, the strategies or the models that you have. Um, so, ha- you know, is it is it doing exactly as as you expected or expect from it?
0: Um, I think generally yes. So we. We target, you know, we, ta- we, we start off with targeting a volatility. So we're targeting 21.5% volatility. Okay.
1: Why 215 uh, That That's a funny number.
0: Uh, it was a back- <laughs> Um So so when we first started, you know, again, so we're, we're new to the world of uh, of asset management. Right. And so people said to us, you know, what vol are you going to target?
1: Mm.
0: And we said, oh, interesting question. I hadn't thought very much about that. Um, And the only reference point we have was, you know, in our lives as prop traders, the benchmark for a prop desk was to make a 20% return on equity. Right. And we said, well, okay, then we want 20% return on equity, then seems a reasonable expectation. Mm -hmm. um, And we'd like to deliver a sharp ratio of one or better.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, So therefore, let's, you know, we've spent our whole life managing to, managing around being tasked with making a 20% return on equity with a leverage commodity book. Mm. Um, So we know we can do that. Mm. Um, And then we asked the question, what number do you think it'd make investors nervous if we lost it in a month? Right. (laughs) And we sort of decided 5% probably gets people's attention. Um, And putting the two together, um, it turns out that the the volatility to give you a five percent week's twenty one and a half. Right. Okay. So okay. <laughs> it was a backfit into a uh, into a weekly um, weekly risk budget. Sure.
1: sure. And, and and during the the, the the period you've been trading, as as we talked about earlier on, 2011 was a difficult yeah. uh, period. Very was difficult, that yeah. Was that a difficult period for 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 generally your sp- types of strategy or was it unique to to just your your uh, specific uh, firm or I, I don't have a reference point in that sense i know it's it's been a very i mean 11 12 uh, 13 was very difficult for the systematic guys but I, I don't know about discretionary whether that has to follow in line with that or not
0: no it doesn't have to follow um and some people some people had I think very few people had a good 2011. (laughs) Um, You know, in the small universe of discretionary commodity fundamental managers, um, the majority lost money in 2011, and the majority have actually lost money over the whole period 2011 to
1: 2014.
0: Mm. Um, But 2011 was really the most difficult year. Yeah. Um, and um, we think that has a lot to do with the, the sort of high level of macro correlation around the, you know, the market. every market was being driven by the euro crisis in right. the summer of uh, 2011. And that was, that was creating a lot of, you know, it was overriding fundamental signals. It was overriding technical signals. And by you know, so by its nature, how do you interpret a statement by Mrs. Merkel or whatever? It's none of us as managers have particularly. A competitive advantage in that
1: (laughs) that's very true that's very true now over the years since you started and and we'll talk a little bit about the specific strategies you do in 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 a little while but but have you changed from an overall point of view have you introduced new types of strategies or are you doing exactly uh the same kind of style of strategies that you started out
0: with exactly the same okay We've broadened the commodity range a little bit. Um, so when we first started, uh, things, uh, you know, coal, iron ore, ocean freight were still not really, you know, they were at very early stages of development sure. as derivative markets. And, you know, in the last few years, they've become much more developed, much deeper, much liquid derivative markets. So, yeah. We sort of added co freight and, uh, and iron ore, sure. um, but but in terms of the trading approach, the trading style, that's not changed at all.
1: Okay now you briefly touched upon it uh, earlier today but you you spent a little bit more time with me last week uh, in your office explaining uh, a particular characteristic about commodities which i actually think is very important for for the listeners to understand and this is the thing where you just say you know a small change uh, in the supply demand uh, you know uh, equation can lead to big moves in in the markets from being overbought to being oversold um Tell me a little bit more about that, but also more importantly, tell me how you then use that in your strategies today. Uh, because to me, it, it it sounds like, or it, it, it certainly uh, confirms, that commodities from time to time will have some large moves uh, which you can utilize from a directional point of view. But, yeah. but unlike many other managers you are not just doing directional trading you're also doing relative value trading so so how does the, the 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 this unique characteristic how does that play out and how do you make use of that
0: yeah so um commodities you could characterize the the price behavior of commodities is is really dictated by inelasticity of both supply and demand in the short term. So for, for most commodities, a change in price doesn't quickly deliver a change in either consumption or production. Right. And therefore, the market has to adjust through, um, you know, firstly through the carrying charge. So, if you can't, you know, if, if a market's in oversupply, um, you can't easily create new demand, and you can't easily shut off existing production. Sure. So, in essence, the market has to bring forward future demand by creating economics to store the commodity. Okay. Conversely, if you're in a if you're in a um, situation where demand is is moving ahead of supply and where inventories are being reduced, then firstly, the market has to bring as much material out of storage as possible to meet current demand. And it does that by inverting the time curves. Mm. So, so in essence, a, a contango time curve is saying please take my commodity and and I'll give you a profit for warehousing it right in a in an undersupplied market the time curve is saying please give it me today i'll pay you a premium to have it today yeah and so direct the directional phase of the market and the shape of the time curve are very fundamentally and deeply linked together. Right. Then you have um, more sort of relationships around uh, how you process commodities. So, um, you know, if you look at petroleum, the the refining margin and, you know, the crack spreads, the relationship between the price of the crude oil inputs and the petroleum output, and again, that's that's the market creating economics or or diseconomics to adjust the supply demand balance. For you know, if you've got too much gasoline and not enough heating oil, then the price of gasoline relative to the price of heating oil has to change so that the the refiners make. More of one and less of the other. Sure. So all those um, essentially, you say, okay, what's our view of supply demand over the next six months, twelve months? So, so typically, we are not we're not particularly interested in what's going to happen in five years or even three years. We're we're operating more what's happening in the next crop, what's happening in the next calendar year. Okay. And then, you know. You look at, we look at our supply-demand model that we've modelled, and then we look at the price curve as it is today. So firstly, what's the directional price? So is our, is our supply-demand model indicating that there's going to be some significant need to change the outright price of the commodity? Mm-hmm. So are you generating meaningful surpluses or meaningful deficits? The second question then is, okay, what's the shape of the time curve? So our supply-demand model says that, you know, the supply of soybeans is going to be very heavy after the harvest, so therefore the time spread is too narrow at the moment. It should widen out. Um, the relationship then, are the farmer's getting the right signal to plant corn relative to soybeans. Right. Right so so we're looking relative to the supply demand model what's been mispriced today or what is the market not pricing sure so then that you initiate your trade and then as you move through time you're then trying to by by a, by looking at what's going on in the physical market how is the price of the physical commodity relative to the futures market um, is Chinese demand? You know, are the Chinese pulling? Um, you're trying to get look for indicators that are confirming or or challenging your supply-demand model. So it's a it's a constantly evolving process and feedback between what what's happening in the marketplace and what's happening in the model.
1: I wanted to ask you, Mike, you mentioned China here. And is it really like this today that if you don't know <laughs> what they're doing, um, then you don't, I mean, it, it, it's kind of the, the the major key to understanding commodity price developments. Is that really down to what China is doing underneath all of this?
0: If you had to say one single factor then, for a range of commodities, China is—you know—so China is the biggest cons- consumer, the biggest importer of many major commodities. It's also the biggest producer of several commodities.
1: Mm.
0: And so, what happens in China is very important, and it's more important for some commodities than other commodities. Sure, um, but it, but. There is other stuff goes on. So weather, weather is very important for some commodities. um, Demand in other, you know. So for instance, the gasoline market is still very much American. You know, America's the major driver. Right. Um, It depends on the commodity. Right. But as a as a general proposition, if you if you could only have one (laughs) one insight. Right. You were, you certainly for the the demand for commodities. You pick yeah. you pick China.
1: Yeah, you talked about putting this kind of information into your model. Um,
0: that's that's a bit of a grandiose word. When we talk about a model, we're, we're generally talking about a supply demand commodity. Commodity people refer to a supply demand balance. sheet. Right, and and i
1: I'm, I'm just wondering here. Uh, are, are the things that you see when you do that when you analyze it in this way is it so in your world that the patterns repeat meaning if 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 supply demand is you know this number so to speak then 90% of the time the price will do this i mean is it is it that kind of repeating scenarios repeating patterns like we know systematic traders, they look for patterns in the markets that repeat themselves and they just you know, follow those. I mean, is it kind of the same thing, just using slightly different inputs in your world?
0: Uh, to an extent, yes. So, so the key input, if you like, or the key output from your analysis that you're generally looking for is the stocks-to-use ratio. Okay. So, you know how much of, you know, how large are, are inventories or supplies of the commodity relative to the demand for the commodity. Yeah. And d- depending on the commodity, there are sort of, sort of threshold levels where, you know, if you take the stocks to use ratio below 15% for, you know, for corn or soya beans that's usually accompanied by sharply higher prices and inverted time curves. Right. Right. But maybe only seven times out of ten. Sure. So it's not
1: You can't use it as a as a as a as a hundred percent guide as 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 with no. all these things.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, I'm sure there are people who do it much more statistically than we do it. Sure. What about
1: correlation? you mentioned that briefly when you said the difficult times in 2011, uh, you know markets were highly correlated etc cetera, et cetera I mean okay. uh, when you talk about these you know ratios it, to me it doesn't sound like correlation plays a big role, but it probably does somehow how does it play a role in in what you do
0: so so correlation plays a big role in, in our risk um you know, because we're running a VAR model, right? And so, to the extent that things are getting more or less correlated, then our VAR model will be allowing us more more risk or less risk. Okay. Um, at a more macro level, you know, a challenge always f- for us is how do you weight? <laughs> <fundamental laughs> Ready
1: to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.